Success is measured by having ideas. It's pushing and advocating for the products you want to build. It's bringing people along. It's it's influencing people. It's actually helping people understand that your idea can live in the world and having a narrative around it. Hey everyone, welcome to No Limits. I'm your host Rebecca Jarvis, and if you're a frequent listener, really appreciate it. Thanks for sticking with us. If you're new, welcome. Each week, we are talking to one woman. We're going deep into her story. These are women across all industries who are playing at the top of their game, and we're looking beyond the resume. We're looking at the decisions along the way, the trade-offs, the pivotal moments that have shaped their careers and their lives, the tough choices that, you know what, aren't always obvious. Sometimes you have two options in life, and they may both look great, or they might both look bad. And these women have been there. So whether you're looking for advice or you just want to hear a good story, you've come to the right place. So today's guest has been called one of the most powerful female engineers. She's been at Facebook for 10 years. She is the vice president and creator of Facebook Marketplace. And prior to Facebook, she had roles at some of the best-known companies in Silicon Valley, PayPal, eBay. She's also the co-founder of Women in Product. It's a nonprofit that's focused on helping more women enter and succeed in product management in the tech sector. And she said of it that she was feeling stuck. And she recognized that that's something a lot of women can feel, feeling stuck in their careers and not figuring out how to find their way to the top. And that is one of the major reasons why she created Women in Product. So we're going to dig into that in just a minute. But I want to welcome to No Limits, Deb Liu. Nice to see you, Deb. Nice to see you too, Rebecca. I'm really thankful to have you here with us. And I, you know, there's so much to get to. Facebook, obviously, is a, is a big one. The 10 years, congratulations, that you've spent now at the company. Thanks. I mean, it's amazing. If you had told me 10 years ago we'd be here, I would have not believed you. When you joined Facebook, okay, so you had just left eBay. You just had had your second child. Yeah. So you were thinking, I mean, I just had my first. So oh, I, I can appreciate, thank you. I can appreciate that. When you have just had a child and you're also thinking about your career, that's there's a lot to consider. Well, the thing was, I had actually had my first child when I was at PayPal, and then I went to eBay and I had my second child. And I was working part-time, actually. And the opportunity came to go to Facebook, and I thought, should I do this? And it actually came while I was on maternity leave. I got an email from a friend of mine who had recently joined Facebook and said, perfect job has opened up. You need to come apply. Wow. And, and remember, what did you think when you saw the email? Well, I was in Hawaii and I was on maternity leave and I thought, this is crazy. <laughs> Why am I leaving yeah, this? Yes. And I had, I loved my job and I was really enjoying working part time. I, And I thought, you know, am I ready for the next ride? And, you know, it was that moment where looking back, it was a huge turning point for me. But at the time mm-hmm. I thought, you know, am I ready for the next ride in Silicon Valley? And What part convinced of me, you you were? Well, part of it was I met Cheryl. And she gave me the Sandberg. lean Sandberg, obviously. And she gave me the lean in talk before lean in was before she had, you know, the book and everything else. And she said, you know, a lot of people have great careers, but they kind of reach a place where they're having children and they kind of slow down. And you know what? She was right. And, you know, it was the next rocket ship. And at the time, Facebook only had a few hundred employees and it was such an amazing opportunity to build something really new. And I really wanted to work on social commerce. And so I said yes. And I took the plunge. And it has been a crazy ride since. 
crazy. What's the craziest thing that's happened so far on the ride? Well, I think in this 10 years, what's, what has opened the doors for me is just the opportunity to actually build new products in completely new spaces. That like I've, Marketplace. Like Marketplace. And I've worked on a lot of amazing products over the years. I worked on games and Facebook credits. I run the payment system. I ran Platform. I've also worked on an ad network. I build mobile app install ads. And just in the last 10 years, I've built so many new things that I never thought I could do. And I think it has challenged me in such a way and it's stretched me. And I've grown so much because it wasn't where you go to a company where everything's defined. Mm -hmm. We actually had an opportunity to find the future of what things could be. And that has stretched me in such different ways. Were you always drawn to tech as a kid? You know, it was interesting. So I wanted to uh, be an engineer when I was growing up. My father was an engineer. And so I studied engineering because I either wanted to be an architect or I wanted to build wastewater treatment systems and water treatment systems in the third world. So I actually got an environmental engineering degree. That was at Duke. At Duke. As an undergrad. You got your MBA at Stanford. And I got my MBA at Stanford and actually kind of stumbled into tech. Um, I was at a career fair at Stanford and I saw the PayPal desk and I just wanted to tell them, your product is amazing. And as an eBay seller, I love it. And they said, do you want to interview? And I said, not really. Um, Why? I was thinking about moving back to North Carolina. So, uh, you know, my husband's from North Carolina after business school. We had only planned to stay in California for a couple of years. And then suddenly I was the next day I was at PayPal and they said, just tell us what you think we should build. And I said, here's 20 things I think as a seller you need to do here, are like all the things we could do. And then they said, how about a job? And I said, I didn't really think about actually staying. And so I joined, and we were acquired by eBay the next, actually, a few weeks later. Did you know that? I did not know that. You had had, no idea. I had no idea. I had actually asked before. I'd asked Peter Thiel. Is it possible? Was it possible? And he said, definitely not. And it turns out. (laughs) Whoa. He told you it wasn't going to happen? He said it wasn't going to happen. And actually, the deal, and later I talked to a lot of people, and they said the deal actually happened in a very short period of time. Peter Thiel, by the way, uh, one of the PayPal mafia Elon Musk, yeah. Reed Hoffman, <laughs> yeah. other names that people are familiar with. Yeah. So you were you were at PayPal in those early years. Yeah, I was there and it was amazing. It was an amazing ride. And we were acquired by eBay and then I worked on the eBay PayPal integration for the next several years. And it was it was just amazing to get to the heart of what tech was, which was actually building things that could change people's lives. And what I loved about working there was that you could, you know, people could create businesses online with just setting up a PayPal account, an eBay account. And that's that passion I carry to this day, which is how do we actually enable people who have an idea to create economic opportunity for themselves? And so in so many ways, those formative years actually created the arc, which actually led me to where I am today. It's interesting to me. I look at your career path. So you had, you've had 10 years now at Facebook. You were at were you inside of eBay then for seven years prior or how many years was that? So I spent about seven years at PayPal and eBay. At PayPal and eBay. So a lot of people in a role, especially a role like yours, you're seeing so many startups and you're recognizing that the technology is allowing for so many entrepreneurs to create businesses. Did you ever have a desire to go that path? And if you did, why not? You know, I've thought a lot about leaving to to start something, but at the same time, you know, within these companies, you have the opportunity to be an entrepreneur actually in companies. And what's great about Facebook is 
in so many ways, I've started four or five new things within a company that has the support to actually grow those things to massive opportunities for the world. And so, and, you know, I've thought a lot about it over the years, but each time I've had the opportunity to start something from scratch and create it to billion dollar businesses to create opportunities for millions of people in the world. And that opportunity has always attracted me to Facebook and is what kept me there for the last 10 years. It's a, I think a lot about that in, in my role as well. When you're inside of a company like Facebook, or in this case for me inside of ABC, which is owned by Disney, there is you have the something a, a bit of a checkbook to play with. I mean, it's not I'm not I, I don't want to overstate things here. But if you're starting a company from scratch, you are literally building out everything. You're building out the infrastructure. You don't have an office to come back to, let alone money to start the thing that you're doing. You have to go out and get all of those things set up. So there are benefits to doing that. And Marketplace is one of the results of that work that you've done. Um, what's the downside of it? You know, the thing that you trade off is, you know, you you get so much leverage actually being in a company in that you can use the infrastructure. There's HR policies. There are are recruiters that help you. But in some ways, you give up some control, right? Because you are navigating an organization. You are, you know, soliciting support. And so it's just different. And so in some ways, you don't get to control every policy. You don't get to set every piece of the culture. You don't. And so... As long as you know that what you gain is more than what you lose, the equation within a company gives you so much opportunity. It also gives you a safe place to land, right? And so if, for example, you know, in some ways you're flying without a net when you're on your own, but in a company, you have the opportunity to build, test, fail, but then start again immediately. You don't have to shut this down and start the next thing, right? You actually can pivot, you can iterate, and your team comes along with you. And so I think that it is that trade-off between kind of the ability to scale something really fast once you hit product market fit and something which will take you more time. And so you have to decide as somebody who's really passionate about creating new things, whether you can do that within a company or outside and what that what works for you. And, and sometimes it, it takes finding the right company culture, too. You may be the kind of person who would love to build something from within. And that might be your sort of DNA wiring. But if you're in a company that isn't uh, in, on board with that kind of thing, it's going to be an uphill battle. Yes. <laughs> yes. How has the culture changed inside of Facebook in these last 10 years? I would imagine it's changed by a lot, especially just given the size. But now the conversations since Cambridge Analytica and the FTC $5 billion fine that Facebook just had to pay. The one thing that hasn't changed is that it's Facebook continues to be a place where we innovate. It's hard to see from the outside because what you see is the things that succeed. But what you don't see is there is an engine of innovation that happens every day where we're iterating on our products, where we're growing things, we're testing things. And that's the part that brought me here and the reason I stay is that that has not changed. But what has changed is it takes, we have a responsibility to the billions of people who use our product, right? Over a billion people come to our product and we have a responsibility to them. And it's just something, a reminder that, you know, these things are important to us as we figure out how to build things. How do we build things in a way that supports what people are, what people's expectations are? How do we build products where people are understanding what's happening as we're building them and as they're using the products as well? How's morale? So actually, so on my team, we're really excited about what we're building because the way that we think about it in commerce and marketplace and payments is we really think about it from the perspective of, are we creating economic opportunity in the world? And we ask ourselves that, 
right? And we are succeeding at a thing that's so hard for people to understand. It's very nebulous, right? Are you creating economic opportunity in the world? But we ask ourselves, and people who join our team specifically ask themselves, I ask them, is this what you want to do? Because there's amazing places in Facebook mm. to do really amazing things. If you want right. to are they just trying to get in the company? Yes. <laughs> or are they actually coming there for a marketplace? Yeah, and so we, we look for people who have that mission of, economic opportunity because there's other parts of the company that are about connection, about messaging, you know, about sharing. Like there's a, a lot of other if you want to work on, you know, private messaging. Like there's you, know, you can work at WhatsApp if you want to, you know, you want to support um, people who are sharing content. You know, Instagram's an amazing place with brands and and creators. And so the question is, are you it, the great thing about Facebook is there's a place for whatever it is you're passionate about. And so if you're passionate about messaging, there's a place. If you're passionate about, you know, helping creators create content, like there's a place. If you're, you know, there's the entertainment video team, there's, you know, there's Instagram. And so each of these, um, each person who comes in the company, there's a place for them. And the place that we occupy is you want to create economic opportunity in the world and enable everyone to buy and sell. And we talk a lot about that as our mission, which is, you know, we're really creating a platform where anyone can buy and sell and connect with people to actually create businesses and to be able to support their families. And it's a little bit like it is a little bit like eBay in some ways. I mean, it kind of looks the way that eBay looks in some ways, but it's in within the Facebook platform. What percent of Facebook users are actually engaged in marketplace? So one of the stats we've shared in the past is one in three people in the U.S. use this product. One of the things I think is interesting about the industry right now, big tech, is that you look at a company like Facebook with Marketplace or Apple that they just came out with the Apple card or Amazon getting rid of FedEx and now they're going to do their own deliveries. It feels like all of these mega companies are saying, "Okay, we do whatever that thing is that we do, our core business. What else can we do? And all of a sudden you're presenting uh, challenges for or potentially challenges for the other big players in the space, like eBay, for example, with Facebook Marketplace, or for example, taking on Airbnb a little bit. Is the world 10 years from now going to be a winner take all, i.e. Facebook owns the whole thing or Amazon owns the whole thing? Or do you think it will be companies like Facebook and Apple and Amazon dabbling in these other areas, but not necessarily going away from whatever their core business is today? Well, what's really interesting, and people ask me this question a lot, which is, you know, why are we doing marketplace, right? Why do we sell cars? And I said, look, people actually, while they could, they a lot of other opportunities to buy and sell from one another, they actually created this. They went to. They groups. were already on Facebook. They were doing already this. on. They were on Facebook. They created groups to buy and sell with each other, and it was very difficult to find these groups. These were groups that were in small towns, or they, you had to know someone to get into some of these groups. You had to find them, and actually, in almost every country we've been in, people had created these groups to buy and sell, and so it was like a human need that they found a way to solve through our product. And we realized if we just make the product better, we make it easy to find things for you to be able to list in different groups to actually be able to list in an open marketplace where we can, you know, actually help you find things that you're looking for. And that would just make the product better. And so actually, it's not the world is actually more complex than we think it is. We think that the world is really simple where, you know, 
online commerce is going to be one by one player. But if you think about all of commerce, online commerce is only what 10, 15 percent of total commerce. Right. And so we that surprises people. The direction, the shift is moving online. The growth is happening online, but people still shop more in stores than they do online. That's correct. And so you think about that and you think about all the opportunities. I think that no one place will be everything to everyone. Instead, what people will do is they'll gravitate towards the things that work for them. Right. And so if it's a local community group where you buy and sell, that is how you want to do it. But then we actually find the businesses say, hey, we want to be, you know, we find somebody like um, Clara. She lives in um, D.C. She actually started selling plants on the side and now she's created a business. And what's interesting is now she says, hey, how do I amplify my business, you know, on Marketplace? And so then we see businesses wanting to participate. And so as we evolve our product, initially it's people selling their personal cars. Then businesses say, hey, how do we actually put dealer autos on there? And so you see the evolution happening because the need is actually growing. And each of these companies are actually just trying to make something inefficient, more efficient for people. And so I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I actually think that what we're trying to solve is actually less friction in the system for everybody. And whatever is working for that group of people is what they're going to gravitate towards. I often think about it, especially when it comes to commerce. There are lots of stores out there. People shop at lots of stores. They don't choose the one, this is everything store. Although... Maybe some people will move in that direction with Amazon, but that's a side conversation. There is a conversation also that's happening right now around the idea that companies like yours have gotten too big, that they're playing in too many different categories, that they have too much control. You have your two billion plus users, people all over the world who are using Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Marketplace. Make the case for why Facebook shouldn't be broken up. Well, I think that if you look at what problems we're solving in the world, right, how are we solving problems better in the world? Like things like, you know, with commerce, this is really um, when when I look at what we have created, it is really taking what people want and putting it together and making it possible for them to do it better. That they have created, you know, they sell on profiles, they sell on pages, they sell in groups. And all we did was make it possible for them to sell it so that they have one place, one destination across all of those places to actually find products. And we add search to it. We make their lives, make buying more efficient. And so in a lot of ways, people are using these products in the way that helps solve the problems that they have. And so if they, you know, if they want to talk about products, we make it easier for them to talk about products, but tag the products on Instagram. You know, they want to message each other, but we make it easier for you to pay one another there. It's really an extension of the things that they're asking us for. And so it's really important that you think about these things as to how what are the, the human needs that we're actually solving and how do we actually make the world better through the things that people are asking us for and actually using our tools to do. And as we kind of work on each of these things, how are we improving people's lives? And so I look at the world very in, in the way where if, you know, if people around the world are actually finding value in this thing enough that they're actually taking a product that was supposed to do something else to do to solve a different problem, and we then help people solve that problem better, you know, that is a, a wonderful thing because now they're actually able to connect with their communities to buy and sell. When it comes to your career and other women who are in the engineering space, only 18% of computer science and engineering degrees are going to women. Still in the highest ranks of major tech companies, women are the minority. And 
your nonprofit, the one you co-founded, Women in Product, is trying to address some of that. What's the number one thing that you think needs to change? You know, I think a lot of this is – so there's a couple of things. One is it's cultural, right? If we tell girls that they're – you know, that this is not the path – so my, my daughter was seven. I wanted her to take a coding class. So we go to a coding school in Palo Alto. So I, you know, I live near Stanford, so right in the heart of tech. And um, they said, oh, you know, she passed the coding test. She can come in. But by the way, we don't have any girls that take classes during the week. There's a couple of girls on the weekend. And they said, it's seven years old. Girls have already opted out or their parents have opted out. Like, are they really making a decision at seven years old to say coding is not for them? But think about the culture in which a seven-year-old girl lives. What kind of pressures their parents In Palo Alto of all places. And so think about that, right? You think about it. The subtle clues we give our daughters. But how would you change that? Them out already. Are you going to force parents of girls to bring their daughter to? I mean, I will. My daughter, Isabel, she's five months old right now. Um, by the time this runs, she might be a little bit older than that. But my daughter, she's not one yet. I would love to see her take engineering computer science classes. I will definitely encourage her to do that. But beyond that, what can you really do? I mean, at that level, you know what I mean? Well, I think that it's, it is both a micro problem and a macro problem because our culture is telling girls, hey, this isn't for you. And so how do we actually change that to say, hey, this is, this is an equal opportunity for you and the boys. I have a son and two daughters, and I want to make sure that my girls feel like they have equal opportunity to make it. Do you think moms in Palo Alto aren't teaching their seven-year-old girls that, though? Well, that's the question, which was something about the way we were subtly creating a culture is saying, hey, we're going to sign up our girls for art classes and our sons for coding classes. I mean, I signed up my daughters and and son for art classes, too, right? But I realized that if it starts that early, the problem isn't when you get to college. The problem is when they're seven years old and you're choosing whether to opt your daughters into art class or coding class. And so what is the culture? When you look at, when you think about the sole male founder, you think about success in Silicon Valley and you name the top five people, who do you think of, right? And, you know, it's hard because without role models, then girls think, oh, well, that's not me. You know, I um, carry a water bottle that says, be the nerd. I love that. And it's because somebody had commented in one of Mark's posts, which is, how do I get my daughters to not go for the jocks, but instead, you know, date the nerds in college? And he said, your daughters should be the nerds. That's great. And so uh, there's a water bottle that they created in our company. It says, be the nerd. And I carry that as a reminder that, you know, but the subtle thing that 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 mother was saying was, hey, you know. Are, we should marry the nerd, mm-hmm. right? But why right. couldn't the girl be in engineering? Why can't she go found the company? And so it's those subtle things. And one of the things, for example, in women in product that we advocate for is like not requiring a CS degree to become a product manager. And so a lot of um, very successful product leaders actually do not have computer science degrees. But if you are, if you say to be a successful product leader, you must have a computer science degree. You've already said, you know what? Only eighteen percent of people coming from college who are are women. And therefore, of the classes of people we can get into product management, which is a great field, it's only going to be 18 percent women. Mm -hmm. You've already created bias in the system. And I've seen statistics around that. And you correct me if I'm wrong. 
But like you said, to be a product manager, you don't have you don't have to have a computer science degree. But the majority of women who are product managers do have CS degrees, whereas the men is. Am I right about that? So we've done a bunch of studies within women in product to try to understand that a lot of women do have technical degrees, but a lot of them were required to have a technical degree to get in. Exactly, That's the challenge. Which is the point that yes. I'm I'm sort of making here, which is your. You're saying if the entrance to something requires a certain pedigree, obviously there's going to be some women who aren't coming to the to the door with that. This topic is really important to me because some of the most successful product leaders I know who are women do not have CS degrees. But you know, a lot of them, if the if these companies are saying you require that, they would have missed out on some of the best compute the best product leaders in the world because they had a requirement that seemed to make sense at the time. To have this extra requirement, but actually the requirement makes their leadership less diverse. It, it makes their product worse. And instead of looking at the gamut of everyone who could do this, they said, hey, we're just going to narrow it down to this group of people. And then within this group of people, it happens that only 18 percent are women. One lesson I would like to uh, share with everybody who's listening right now, and it's something my mom taught me, thank goodness, was the idea of applying for jobs, even if you don't have every single thing that the application is asking for. And I've talked to a handful of of hiring people who are in hiring positions previously, and they say the majority of women who apply to the job come with every single box checked off, whereas the majority of men who apply, you know, maybe they do 50 percent of what the uh, application is asking for. And I think it's a really important lesson, male or female, that if there's something that you want, You go for it. And when you get there, and this was the other part of the lesson my mom said, when you get there, you figure the whole thing out. You know, figure it out fast, too, by the way. Yeah. And I think that we often think that um, that we often don't realize that our system has created these differentials and we don't notice them. And then later we go, hey, why is our fields not diverse? Why are there so few women in this in our leadership? Well, if you start at the beginning and you say, well, we required this and then girls aren't entering CS from when they're seven years old, you've created and you say, well, the next pipeline we can fix is 20 years from now. Or we say, hey, what are the systematic things that we can do to actually unblock the system that we have today? And so I was hired into um, Facebook as a product marketing manager, a PMM, because I didn't have a CS degree. So I have an engineering degree, but not a CS degree. And eventually I moved over to product. The thing is, like, you know, I lead a product team today. I also lead an engineering team today. And some of the most prominent women, like Fiji Simo and some of the, like Naomi, they are incredible. They're VPs of product at Facebook. And they also are incredible leaders, but they also do not necessarily have a CS degree. But what makes all of us successful is that we are adaptable and we're learning. We're learning how to be great leaders and product leaders. And so it doesn't, that requirement actually is not the thing that made us successful or not. But you know, none of us entered in the product field. What's the biggest challenge you've had along the way? Hear more from Deb Liu after a word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. What's the biggest challenge you've had along the way? I think the hardest thing is you really need a sponsor or somebody who believes in you. And when you have someone who has your back and when you fail, they say, you know what, I am going to be behind you. That gives you the courage to take risk and do the really hard things. But when you feel like you're flying without somebody who's there, who's going to have your back, you feel like you can't take those risks. But the thing is, great careers are made by actually taking risk and doing something that someone else hasn't done. Do you advocate then for taking the risk even if you don't have the sponsor? What I do is I would advocate for you then to find a group of people that you can trust. So a lean-in circle, a mentoring circle, somebody where you can bounce ideas off of. If you don't have a sponsor, it's harder, but it doesn't mean you can't do it. It means that you have to have something to fall back on, a group of people you trust within the company you can bounce ideas off of. Create your own board of directors. I've heard this Mm -hmm. advice, which is create a group of people who can give you advice, who can say, hey, you know, you're doing the wrong thing. You just need someone who who can tell you the truth. I think the most important thing um, about working at Facebook is we really believe in a learning mindset and lots of feedback. And those critical things, feedback, critical feedback. Yes, And you have to be OK with that. And you have to be OK with that. But you're also turning this crank, right? You're getting feedback. But with a learning mindset, you're able to adapt. And then as a, if you have a learning mindset, you go seek out the critical feedback to fix the things that are not going well. And, vice versa, and you actually are actually improving. And each time you get feedback, you improve. You're actually laddering up. And so you're growing your career by actually being better at what you do every single day. But imagine, you know, you hire someone who has kind of a fixed mindset. Well, I'm an introvert or I can't do this or I'm not technical. And they never say, hey, well, what can I do better? But someone who says every day I want to get a little better at what I'm doing. Please tell me what is one thing I can do this week to be better. And then they take that feedback and get slightly better. Over time, those two people, even with the the person who has the fixed feedback, the fixed mindset is way better. Over time, the other person will exceed them. Carolyn Emerson and I talked a little bit about this idea of the critical feedback inside of Facebook. Uh, you should take a listen to that No Limits episode if you haven't yet. She she and I had a great conversation as well. And I wonder from your standpoint, Deb, were you, are you, have you always been the kind of person that gets critical feedback, doesn't take it personally, feels good about the way that you hear it and implements it? So I wish, <laughs> but actually I I take feedback very personally. However, it doesn't mean it's any less true. And so you can hear the feedback. You can feel bad about it, but you can also do something about it. And that's the thing is that you don't have to be, you, you don't have to be comfortable hearing the feedback. You have to be willing to be, look within yourself and say, you know what, there is truth in that. And rather than pushing back, say, what, does, what is the kernel of truth in there? And what do I do with that to actually grow from it? You know, a lot of people think you have to just like be your know, Teflon, right? You have to right. be able to take the feedback. I am not that it's person. mechanical. I'm not that person. I, I actually love critical feedback. But I, when people say things to me, and this comes up when, when I ask people for the worst advice they ever received, mm-hmm. I oftentimes, the bad advice that I received, I wasn't quick to just discard it. Some people are very quick to discard it. Like they're just, 
they're the hero in their story and they don't even think of anybody else. And when someone else says something stupid to them, cast it away. I've gotten a little better about that, but I still consider what someone is saying. And there's like a, a necessary balance where you don't internalize it and make yourself worse for it. Well, I think part of it is really understanding the perspective of the other person. When someone gives you feedback, first, they're taking a risk because they're giving you feedback. But second, you need to understand feedback is all received in the context of your relationship. If someone gives you feedback and you're very close to them, you know they're doing it because they're doing it for your own good, right? Whenever you hear feedback from someone who cares about you, your sponsor, your mentor, your manager, they want you to get better. That's why they're telling you. Because otherwise, they wouldn't bother, right? And so in that context of that relationship, but if it's someone you don't know really well, you know, there's still a grain of truth in that. You just need to figure out what that is. And then you need to contextualize that feedback. And then one of the things people don't do often enough is decide what to do with it. Make a conscious choice. When you hear feedback, say, yes, it's true in these circumstances. And here's what I'm going to choose to do with it. I heard a story from a friend of mine who's, um, who's very successful. And she said, you know, at one point I got feedback that I was too aggressive I was, you know, um, I was too assertive, and so I needed to soften up. And um, at some point, someone said, well, you know, later she heard feedback that she was, she didn't have enough opinions, and she was mm-hmm. too bland, right? This happens all the time, yeah. It, it was like she overcorrected in some way, right? And, and now she says, you know, I now choose consciously what feedback I take and how I want to interpret it. Yes, she, I was probably maybe assert, too assertive in this circumstance, however— I'm going to choose the things that I care about and be assertive about the things that I care about, but not on everything, right? Mm-hmm. And I think these choices and being conscious about it actually allows you to decide what feedback to take in and what feedback to say, I heard it. I understand why that's a barrier between me and someone else. And I choosing to say that is not the thing I need to change right now. If you could go back in time and change anything about your career and the way you handled it, what would you do? So it was um, interesting. I actually was a consultant early on, and I was very quiet. I'm extremely introverted. And I didn't ever speak up. I didn't like socializing with clients. I really struggled. So I was a great analyst, right? I could do the analytics. This was right out of college. Right out of college. I I did the investment banking track. You You did did the the consulting track. But, you know, you're great at slides. You're great at the analysis. (laughs) But actually, the job, I realized, was not about those things. Yeah. And I totally missed it. So I go to business school. And one of my first classes was organizational behavior. And the last question was, what will you change as a result of what you learned in this class? And I wrote, I will be an extrovert at work. And I remember that because I realized that by actually being extremely introverted, especially in a culture that required you to be extroverted, you were actually putting the burden on someone else. And I was not fitting the requirements of the job. And so I had to learn. And so I taught myself how to actually engage with other people, how to connect with other people. And it was hard. I'm just, you know, some How people... did you teach yourself? That's fascinating to me. So I have a um, the learning mindset we talk about, right? I really believe that almost anything is learnable. You might not be the best in the world at it, but you can almost always get better at something. And so, yes, someone who has natural talent is going to be way better than me at this. However, you can say, what are the baby steps I can take? What can I do this week, this month, this year to actually change? And so one of the things I did was I would not sit back and not speak at meetings because the easiest thing is you listen, right? But when you listen, you are basically receiving, but you're actually not giving. And so I forced myself to say, you know what, if I'm going to show up at a meeting, I want to contribute something. 
And so it was really small steps. And so I would actually mark, so you can mark on your, you know, that I spoke. And one of the things that you can do is actually force yourself just to do the small thing because then it becomes easier. Just like a muscle you haven't worked out a lot, once you get better at it, it becomes easier. The first mile you run is way harder than if you've run a year and you run that first mile. So walk me through exactly what you would do. You would walk into the meeting. Would you have a set idea of what you were going to speak up and say in the meeting? So what I would do is I would often for the meetings decide you know, what role did I want to play here, right? What, why was I here? Because if you go to a meeting just to listen, did you really need to be there? You can just read the notes afterwards. So instead, you, act, you want to be an active participant. If it's a brainstorm, did you contribute something? So for specific meetings like brainstorms, did I contribute something that furthered the conversation? It's not just contributing something to contribute, but contributing something to actually further the conversation. For other conversations where people are having a discussion, did I participate in such a way that the discussion was better because I showed up? And if you continuously force yourself to ask yourself that question, you will get better at it. Because in the beginning, you're probably terrible at it, but you can say, hey, on a scale from one to 10, I was here, but I can get better. And so over time, you exercise that muscle. And now it's a lot easier to have a conversation with someone. I you know, couldn't have had this conversation that we're having today, 10 years ago, maybe. Because I would have been very uncomfortable doing that. That is so interesting. You would have been afraid of this interview. Well, I think I would have been, I was extremely shy. And I still am. However, what I realized is that, you know, part of every conversation is a two-way street. And if I put the entire burden on you to actually draw out the conversation, then it's really not a two-way street. You're actually doing 80% of the work and I'm putting the burden on you. And I realized for me, what motivated me is I don't want to put that on other people. And so what motivated me to change was to say, you know what, I'm actually putting a tax on other people. It wasn't, I didn't say I need to improve myself. I actually said, I should stop putting a tax on other people. I should meet them halfway. That's very selfless of you. I have to say, what's the worst advice you've received along the way? You know, when I was growing up, um, as you know, I'm Asian American. I grew up in a small town in South Carolina. And, um, you know, my parents, we, you know, it was really hard being one of the only Asian people in a small town. And people would tell us all the time, like, go home to where you came from. Oh. And the thing is, I was born in New York. So I said, well, I should go back to New York. Like, you know, because I didn't see myself as different. When I looked in the mirror, I didn't really feel different than other people. But I think they saw me as so different. And they reminded me every single day. And the advice my parents had was, keep your head down. You know, don't speak up. Don't draw attention to yourself. And that works when you're in a small town and you need to, you know, not, you know, um, not, not raise you need the to survive. Yes. And it's very different. But in the workplace, that's not how success is measured. Success is measured by having ideas. It's pushing and advocating for the products you want to build. It's bringing people along. It's, it's influencing people. It's actually, you know, helping people understand that your idea can live in the world and having a narrative around it. And I realized that their advice worked for where we were at that time, but I had taken it through my life. And that's why I had taken it to consulting. I went through engineering school. I went to consulting. And I had taken that keep your head down and just, you know, and don't draw attention to yourself. And it works until it doesn't work. What I tell people now is the thing that works for most of your life will not take you to where you want to go. Because at some point it will stop working and you will understand that it's actually detrimental to where you want to go. And so I realized that. And that's why in business school I said, you know what, I'm going to change. And it took me a long time because – I was very uncomfortable in myself for so long because I just, 
people would see me as so foreign. And so I started feeling very foreign. So I tried to be less different, but actually made me less accessible in so many different ways. And so now I um, can, I feel like connection is so much more important that put but connection requires you putting yourself out there the yeah. opposite of everything I had ever learned. And so it was a really hard dichotomy for me just growing up the way I did. And also, you know, the Asian culture is very collective, right? So don't raise your hand too much. Don't draw attention to yourself. And it just, it worked for so long. And then I got into the workforce and it didn't work anymore. And I had to adapt. I had to change. And I realized the thing that had made my life successful up until that point was going to actually hinder me for the rest of my career unless I learned to change. And so that's why I have spent the last you know, 15 years changing the way I interact, connecting with people, actually investing in relationships in a really different way. And I bet your parents are very proud of you. I think they understand now, you know, the hindsight, right? But it is so hard when they were in, also in the small town. They also were told, you know, we, it, we went through a lot because of where we lived. And, and now with hindsight, they understand that that is a lesson that worked for them for where they lived. But that is not where it needs to where we needed it to go. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Thank you, W. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, it's the end of the interview, and that means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you who's building something of your own. And this week, we are highlighting Lisa Sedlar. She's the founder and CEO of Green Zebra Grocery. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, I'm Lisa Sedler. I'm the founder and CEO of Green Zebra Grocery. If I have to pick my number one hard thing, it's raising money. Think about your ideal investor and are they aligned with your growth strategy? Are they aligned with taking care of your staff? And are they aligned with building community? At the end of the day, it really just comes down to grit and connections. Try to focus on um, talking to five people a day at least. And um, then if they say no, I ask them to recommend someone. You can get a little bit down sometimes because people are saying no. You have to just maintain your positive vision of the future for your business and for the community and for your staff and think about building a company that's going to be around for generations to come. And that's what keeps me pumped. Congratulations, Lisa. Wishing you continued success. And listeners, remember, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Lisa about building her company. If you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, you can send those nominations to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. And finally, a shout out to the team that helps make this happen each and every week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor, Brittany Martinez, research assistant, Lane Wynn, Thanks to ABC Radio, and we'll see you all next week.